Welcome to You Wanted a Hit, a podcast in which we discuss unlikely, perplexing, and positively bizarre songs that swept the nation and often the world. Hit songs that, looking back, make us think, how did this get played on the radio? Do people actually like this? Do we like this? Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your co-host, Michael Smith, and I'll be discussing one song per episode with my co-host and fellow music fanatic, pop culture enthusiast Theo Beidler. Each episode, we'll take turns exploring a song, while the other host has no idea what song will be the focus until we hit play. Here we go. Christmas extravaganza 2022. We're going to start it off the only way that I know how with a Sierra Nevada celebration. Oh, yeah. Love that. That was pour, uh, pour in a glass here. Got to keep it, keep it, uh, keep it festive, you know. Got to get a glass for the nice beer. Yeah, I like that. Well, it's our uh, it's our second annual Christmas episode. Yeah, you know, I, I on socials I'm trying to be more inclusive and, and say holiday episode, but then I realized that like it's Christmas that has the most absurd songs. So yeah, know, that's definitely it true. Just, it is what uh, it is. Yeah, it is. I I totally I I hear you on that. But some things, Christmas is just a goofy holiday. There's just <clears throat> uh, a lot of novelty, a lot of silliness. I was actually saying because we we're we we're uh, shopping for some Christmas decorations yesterday, and there's all this like, you know, like calligraphy and like silver sparkly things and all that. And I'm like, I want the corny stuff. Get me the light up Santa. Get me like the the big See, chunky yeah. lights. I, I want, you. yeah, like, I think what, one of the things that makes Christmas so fun is just leaning into yeah. it, into the cheese. I, I like the, the cheese. like the 1950s kitschy style, but you know, yeah, there's a, there's a whole line of Target fans out there that need the, the chuggy basic bitch holiday I was about to say decoration. <laughs> so, you know, we're here for all kinds. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, it's our second annual holiday extravaganza episode. Uh, for our new listeners, last year we did Dominic the Donkey, which I highly recommend you go back and listen to if for no other reason than we said the line, Spaghetti Joint South of Secaucus, which I still haven't made my Wi-Fi name, but it's my plan. <laughs> and uh, I think <clears throat> that one's worth it for the mob activity. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> the it, mafia it a, ties. <laughs> we're not going to have as many mafia ties this year. Uh, it's hard to follow up a song like that, but as we just mentioned, uh, holidays offer us plenty of, of crazy songs. I considered doing a very on-the-nose one, like Grandma Got Run Over by Reindeer, Snoopy's mm-hmm. Christmas, One Hit Potamus for Christmas. Uh, I found some lesser-known, absurd ones. Like, I had no idea that uh, Cindy Lauper has a Christmas song. And oh. it is uh, Bonga, 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 Do the Christmas Conga. So we could have done that one. Uh, Lady Gaga Was it a hit, one. though? Was it a hit? I don't believe it was. But, I mean, you okay. know. Uh, this song absolutely a hit and okay. it's one that i kept coming back to it uh i think i like it i've always had a little bit of an issue with it and we'll get into that uh as i think some people do <laughs> i think like most christmas songs this is uh some people love it and some people absolutely despise it uh but without further ado tonight we are going to answer the question that you've all been wondering Christmas time. There's no need to be 
It took a second because the percussion was like sounding funny to the zip. Here. Oh, now, now I can. We're good. George Michael here. George Michael pipes right through the zoom. I'm not George Michael Porter, boy George. Right. You know this song, right? I do. Okay, good, good. We are talking about Band-Aid, and we're answering the question, do they even know it's Christmas? Uh, what are your opinions of this song? I, You know, it's funny, because I've been discussing these super group charity songs a lot recently because I, I think we might have talked about this but jamie had never heard we are the world and we watched the video and it oh, wow. was amazing and hilarious and absurd yeah so we've been talking about these a lot and we actually watched one last night that i i hadn't heard or didn't know existed but has like 400 million plays and it's from three years ago which which, which is what? uh the lil dicky earth song oh i don't know this but i've already loved it because it's Little like Dickie him and no wrong. him and Justin Bieber and I mean all kinds of current stars, Sean Mendez. So that said, I think that the charity supergroups are kind of corny. Right. But this is a pretty decent Christmas song. Hey, it's Michael here with a little editor's note. I actually heard this song on the radio the next day while I was Christmas shopping. And uh, it was the first time I'd heard it in its entirety and really paid attention to it in quite some time. And after hearing it, I thought that Pretty Decent Christmas Song is a fairly strong and rather kind way for me to describe this song. And not to jump all the way to the end of my notes, uh, but I think the legacy of the song is this was one of the first songs to be a supergroup and one of the first songs to be a charity. Uh, and this like Bono credits making the song with everyone else as what started him down the path of of doing charitable endeavors through music. Sting cites that right. uh, you mentioned We Are the World. It's created by the same people who created this song. Um, mm-hmm. And and this is kind of like the spark that really connected the idea that you could have like uber celebrities and and musicians really making a massive difference so uh so we're gonna talk about uh bob bob gilfoyle is that his name bob geldoff geldoff and, and midge yuri yes geldoff gilfoyle geldoff <clears throat> same close thing. enough close enough <laughs> uh so let's go let's take it back a, a little bit here um not to bury the lead but this song is a response and a fundraiser for the famine in ethiopia that was happening between 1983 and 1985 for a little background uh, Ethiopia at the time was what we now know as Ethiopia and uh, Eritrea. Uh, it's a country in the Horn of Africa. Between the years of 1983 and 1985, they were hit with one of the worst famines in over a century. Uh, according to some estimates, it affected some 8 million people and left approximately 300,000 to 1.2 million dead. 2.5 million were internally displaced, whereas 400,000 refugees left Ethiopia. Uh, almost 200,000 children were orphaned during uh, all this. While the cause of the famine was primarily attributed to the drought in the area, uh, it was made much worse due to the fact that it came about a decade into the Ethiopian civil war between the Ethiopian military junta, known as the Derg, and Ethiopian Eritrean anti-government rebels. Uh, because of the unrest, many areas were made much more difficult to access and made areas um, a major security risk for any assistance coming into the area. And most organizations look back at the infighting as being a major reason that this famine was much worse than many others that they had 
leading up to 1983. So now that we're through all the depressing stuff in our festive podcast, uh, let's get back to the song here. The BBC was one of the first to uh, make light uh, or, or you kind of bring light to what was happening in Ethiopia. Uh, they were they were making light of it. <laughs> they were not making light of it. Uh, we, won't, we won't go there. Um, but it was mainly done by Michael Bjork, uh, who was a reporter. And he described the famine as a biblical famine in the 20th century and the closest thing to hell on earth. Michael later said, I wanted to grab people by their lapels, you know, shake them and say, look at this. I'm not going to tell you how to feel, but look at it. The overriding desire was that people at the end of the day couldn't say that they didn't know it was happening. And I think that's all a reporter can ever aspire to. Yeah. So his reporting did make a difference because Bob Gelboff was watching that evening or in October of 1984 and was very moved by what he saw or being reported by the BBC. Uh, can we get Bob, a little background on Bob? Yeah. For so those that aren't aware <clears throat> of him. Bob was the singer of a group called the Boomtown Rats. Uh, the Boomtown Rats are an Irish rock band originally formed in Dublin in 1975. They had a slew of Irish and UK hits, including I Don't Like Mondays, Rat Trap, and Banana Republic. I don't know if you're familiar. Um, I was not terribly familiar. I'm actually surprised they haven't come up already, because their songs are weird. They are, yeah. I was not terribly familiar, but, um, you know, even this song I just sent you, I Don't Like Mondays, is a cool song, but it's off the bat, like more of like a, how do I describe it? Very Queen-esque, I guess. Yeah, and I don't like Mondays. It's about a, an Irish massacre, right? Is it? I, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Man, the Irish with their songs involving days of the week <laughs> and massacres. <laughs> so at the time, Geldof was dating Paula Yates, who was a host of the music show called The Tube, which we have mentioned uh, on the mm-hmm. Proclaimers episode, actually, most recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, on November 2nd, 1984, The Tube featured the band Ultravox, led by singer Midge Yuri. Uh, Ultravox was a British new wave band with several top 40 singles in the UK, the most successful of which was their 1981 hit, Vienna. I don't know if you're familiar with Vienna. I don't know if I am. Maybe. That's a cool song. Also kind of a weird song. Very, like, theatrical and cinematic in nature. Yeah, we were kind of talking about, like, the birth of new wave on our in our previous conversation. And this is like... I feel like new wave like maximalized like it's it's just really over the top yeah but when you get into it you get into it, it's good the bbc documentary is hosted by midge who is the lead singer of ultrabox um and he is quoted in the documentary <laughs> talking about their questionable <laughs> facial hair choices and you'll see some some great mustaches uh in this video as well so there's a bbc documentary of this song which i'll reference a lot and um, several people mentioned that the Boomtown Rats were uh, on a bit of a decline. Bob in general was in a bit of a decline. Mm-hmm. And Midgeri and Ultravox were kind of, you know, much bigger stars. So Geldof, who knew Yuri a little bit from, from past work and they were friendly, uh, he knew that if he got someone like Major on board, then he could start recruiting other large names and have some more mm-hmm. gravitas to the name. So anyway, um, as I mentioned, Geldof was currently dating Paul Yates, who mm-hmm. he'd later marry. Uh, Paula was the host of the TV show. She had Midge Orn. And so Geldof called in to the show uh, after the show. Uh, he called his wife and he got Midge on the phone and told him his idea to do something about the famine in Ethiopia. Uh, he said he wanted to create a song, maybe do a cover of a song, something to help uh, 
and Mitch Sondorn. So at that point, Geldof immediately began recruiting other musicians to join the cause, uh, bringing on Sting and Simon Laban from Duran Duran early on, as well as members of Spandu Ballet, who we had mentioned on our safety dance episode because ah, their song I was True to think when they came up. Yeah, yep. their song True was in the, uh, higher in the charts that week. Yep. Um, I love that song. So they're... I think Duran Duran came up in that episode too, but they've come up a few times. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the BBC documentary that I mentioned, they interview Spandu Ballet, um, Tony Hadley of the band, talking about 84 in general, saying that it was an era of complete contrast. It was the Thatcher era, strikes, a period of immense greed, and no one really cared about anyone else, but it was a period of change and a period of goodwill as well. Uh, Martin Kemp followed up, also from the band saying, it was a fabulous time to be involved in. Everything was larger than life. The clothes, the shoulder pads, the hairspray, it was all about excess. <laughs> Which I think, you know, them talking about that, like coming down and, and being humbled by what was happening in Ethiopia was, was a reminder that like mm-hmm. there was a lot more going on um, in yeah. a time that was all about excess. Bono uh, got the call and said, I thought he was bringing, talking about Bob, like I thought he was bringing me up to say that he liked our album, but he told me it was shite. But despite that fact, he would like us to be a part of his song. <laughs> what what U2 album? What what era U2 are we talking here? It would have been early U2. They were on the rise. So let's, let's see. Uh, U2 albums. And 84. So it would have been war. War. Yeah. That, that or Unforgettable Fire came out in 84. Oh, there you go. There you go. So, yeah. I mean. Which, to be two, fair, that was not as good as war. Yeah, but so. they're two pretty good albums. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Bob seems like a, uh, a a bit of a I don't know cantankerous bunch. He does a little bit, but he's uh, also kind of like seems like a party dude. Yeah. So Phil Collins said when when Bob called them, he completely cut every single corner that could be cut of the bullshit of a conversation. Like, how are you? Having are you having a nice day? He said, Phil, I need a famous drummer. I've never forgotten that because he didn't even have any qualms of whether I was good or not. He just wanted someone to be famous, <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty great. Geldof was able to recruit all these artists to partake free of charge, and he also enlisted the help of his label, Polygram, to help uh, release the album. Simon Laban of Duran Duran said, We got lumped into the Thatcherism because people thought we were just living the high life. Talking about the song, he said, It's an opportunity for us to do something that wasn't about me. It made you feel you could do something useful. We made young people believe that they had some kind of power and were able to do something that did have an effect. I mean, and Simon Laban is such a great person to be saying that because... Duran Duran is just excess. Like their music videos, their concerts, like everything is just massive. Like, yeah. You know, boats and, you boats know, and exotic hose. locations. <laughs> yeah, boats and hose, exotic locations. And like, I mean, that's what I think of when I think of Duran Duran, <clears throat> white suits. Well, I think all these bands were like that at the time. Because like, yeah. even I'm not uh, terribly familiar with Spandu Ballet outside of um, mm. True, but they were on tour yeah. with Duran Duran at the time and they, from their videos, seem like they're a larger than life band. Obviously, Boy George yeah. is larger than life. Period. Uh, and, and Culture sure. Club would be massive them. Uh, so the monumental challenge here is we, we are talking about a song that needs to be released in front of Christmas, nineteen eighty four. And the initial conversation between Midge and Bob happened November second. Oh, so Unforgettable Fire would have just come out. They came out in October of eighty four. Oh, there you go. That makes sense then. So they had about a month to to make the song. They originally considered doing a cover, but without the obvious challenges of getting licensing, they knew that that wouldn't be the most profitable way to, to go about. So uh, they started to write a song, write a new Christmas song. 
Uh, Yuri got to work and came up with what he called a Christmas-like melody on a portable keyboard. Uh, he recorded a quick version and sent the tape to Geldof, who sarcastically told him that the tune sounded like the themed Z cars, which I was not familiar with, but let me send it to you. I don't think I am either. I, from the listen here, <laughs> I think you'll recognize that whatever Mitch put together originally probably sounded a lot like Little Charm Boy, because the theme to Z car sounds a lot like Little Charm Boy. This is, this is like an old uh, English cop show. I guess so, yeah. Gel- yeah. Uh, Geldof created the lyrics based on a song that he had originally written for the Boomtown Rats. As he later recalled, it was lucky in a way because I had already written a song which I had provisionally called It's My World, and I knew it would be suitable if I just changed the words a bit and called it Do They Know It's Christmas. In the documentary, Midge commented on the first time he heard Bob's rough lyrics with a rough guitar saying, it sounded like Bob Dylan on lithium. That was funny. Uh, <laughs> it's a pretty dark song overall. Yeah. Uh, especially if you're like just playing it on a, on a guitar and not like with all the pompous circumstance around it. I also love that Boomtown Rats were kind of on their way out. And he was like, I've had this song that I haven't used. Right. Let's just use it for this other thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Yuri uh, continued to work on the song and, and made only one change to Geldof's lyrics. Uh, I guess the original version said, there won't be snow in Ethiopia this Christmas time. And Yuri changed mm. it to, there won't be snow in Africa this Christmas time. Which, we'll get into it later, but... Because there are parts of Africa that get snow. Well, yes. But also, like this song feels like patronizing in a lot of ways. Yeah, and so, like, right. I almost love the idea of them being like, you know what? What if there's more famines in Africa? Like, let's make this song more inclusive. <laughs> like, right. But again, I, I have come around. We'll talk about it in a bit. But I think it's all <laughs> it's all done in, in, uh, in good favor. So Geldof originally asked Trevor Horn to produce the song. Trevor Horn was in the band The Bugles, best known mm-hmm. for Video Kill, the radio star. Uh, unfortunately, the Trevor. What? The Buggles? The Buggles. Oh. Those yeah. are the bugles. Two Gs. That's two yeah, Gs. You're right. You're right. Yeah. And this is why I have you in the podcast. Yeah, you, bring, uh, <laughs> you bring this knowledge. Uh, unfortunately, Trevor was unable to produce the song. So Yuri produced the song himself. Um, Trevor said he needed six weeks to produce the song properly. And they did it in about 24 hours. So a little less time. Uh, Trevor did let them use his studio for free that day. Wait, they recorded the song in 24 hours? Like, recorded, done. Yeah, they recorded, so we'll get into it. They recorded the wow. song in one day, uh, mixed it that night, and had it on air the next morning. How is everybody available on the same day? Well, we'll get into that. <laughs> We've closed all the music venues we'll in England. Them... <laughs> you can't play. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, so he would, he would let them use the studio for the day. Trevor would also later remix and co-produce the 12-inch version of the song and remix it for a 1985 re-release. Uh, ahead of recording day, Midgeri created a backing track that featured a sample of drums from Tears for Fears song, uh, The Hurt. Oh, yeah. For the intro. Song. You'll definitely hear the drums here are very much in line with the drums of Do the Notes. Tears for Fears is terrific. No, I love the band. Are they in the song? They're not. It's kind of messed up. Fight like them along. Yeah. I never fully. I mean, they, they this might. artwork too is just um, so iconic. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. The artwork for yeah the for the hurting. Yeah, tears of fears. The artwork for this song is also iconic, but we'll get into that. He also had Duran Duran put down some bass and guitar parts ahead of mm-hmm. recording, 
Uh, however, they re- would remove the guitar parts later on because it didn't fit with the predominantly sync-heavy-ness of the song. Right. Uh, he Sting, great bass lines. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he also had Sting and Simon LeBon record their parts ahead of time, although they will come back and actually record them during the recording session, but Bob was worried that people wouldn't show up. So he had to get so something. So Sting wasn't offended that he couldn't play bass on the song? Uh, is Sting a bass player? Yeah, famously. I don't like. I don't think it's I don't like one of the crazy that. things about the police is that he played these insane bass oh, lines right. while he's singing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, I just think of him such as like a front man that I, I forget yeah. about that. I mean, he's kind of become <laughs> he's become Sting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The recording day was uh, November twenty fifth, nineteen eighty four, and somehow a lot of people were available all the same day. Uh, many of them flew in that morning of or the night before. Uh, Duran Duran and, and Spando Ballet were playing a show in Germany the night before uh, and also partied afterwards because they were quite hungover when they showed up, apparently. <laughs> uh, it was Geldof who was in charge of getting all the stars for the recording session. Uh-huh. He said that only three artists that he asked to join had turned him down, but refused to name names. So perhaps Tears for Fears is one of them? Oh, well, maybe. Who knows? Uh, there were some acts who wanted to be a part of the session but were unavailable. David Bowie and Paul McCartney mm. being Two of them. I don't know uh, why however, I thought they did David record, Bowie was in this song. Uh, so they did record messages that would be featured on the B-side of the single, which was an instrumental version with the artists who were in the recording session and some other ones who um, yeah, left messages. I'll, I'll play you both of these, actually. Oh, David Bowie speaking on two episodes in a row. Yeah. This is David Bowie. It's Christmas 1984. And there are more starving folk on that planet than ever before. Please give a thought for them this season and do whatever you can, however small, to help them live. Oh, he's, so, he's so genuine. Yeah. I think he's so genuine because he never did anything he didn't want to do. And then here's Paul McCartney. I have no fucking clue what he says. Hello, this is Paul McCartney. Sorry I can't be with you. <laughs> he said something about feed the world. And it's so way. fast. <laughs> yeah. He just did a mountain have, of cocaine before he recorded that. I mean, quite possibly. Uh, David Bowie would also go on to record a message ahead of the video being played on BBC. So that might be another reason why you connect yeah, David maybe. Bowie with yeah. Feed the World. It's very much in line with what he would have done. Obviously, he would have been there yeah. if he could. Yeah. <clears throat> so as I mentioned, the studio that Trevor Horn owned was used for the recording. It was in the Notting Hill section of London. It was named Swarn Studio, formerly Basing Street Studio, and prior to that, Island Studio, as it was home to Island Records. Oh. Uh, Bob Marley. Had a flat there at one point. Uh, wow. He recorded there. Led, Led Zeppelin recorded there. Jethro Tull, Traffic, and Dire Straits. Uh, all Storied walls. Yeah. In nineteen four, November 25th, Geldof Year and Friends, eventually known as Band-Aid, would come to record there. Um, at this point, we should we can jump into the video. Uh, I, will, I will talk a lot through the video. Um, I say this all because the video is essentially the recording day. So I think it's a good way to talk about what happened there. Yeah. Geldof was smart, and he made sure to alert the media to what was happening so that, you know, lots of cameras were there, mm-hmm. uh, catching all the celebrities uh, coming in. Uh, David, or Sting famously showed up in a limousine around the corner 
and then got out and walked casually in. So it looked like he was very much man of the street. Uh, Bananarama showed up in their their manager's beat up old VW Golf, which is fun. That's great. Uh, the video opens up with the picture of Band-Aid in the newspaper, which was from the next day. They allowed the Daily Mirror to have access internally. So all the video, all the photography came from the Daily Mirror. Let's watch the video a little bit, and then we'll talk about it. If you've seen the video before, you know that it's essentially the recording day. It's all the artists mm-hmm. singing, um, which is kind of cool because especially at that time, you wouldn't have the ability to necessarily look up who was singing what part. So yeah, that's true. And kind of see who was who. Seeing all these people together. Some more obvious yeah. than others. You'll see uh, Phil Collins there in the drums. They sound like Phil Collins drums. <laughs> <clears throat> was done in two takes. Bob Geldof thought the first take of the drums was perfect and Phil Collins being the ultra perfectionist mm-hmm. said, no, let's do it again. So he did. And it was better, <laughs> according to Bob. Man, George Michael and uh, Simon LeBond have the exact same haircut. Yeah, they, in the documentary, they talk about how, like, if you look back at the, the picture, it's like just mullets and excessive hair. Even Bono's yeah. got some good hair here. Yeah, Bono's got the most bitch and mullet there. Yeah, right? Bono looks like he grew up in a trailer in Appalachia. <laughs> he looks like he could be like a, a background actor on Friday Night Lights or something. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of white guys. A lot of white guys. Got the, I think Bananarama and um, just one or two other females were involved. Cool in the Gang's in this? Cool in the Gang was the only American artist to be a part of it. Oh, so cool. That's Cool in the Gang. Okay. Yeah, I knew they looked familiar. Yeah, so Cool in the Gang. Uh, were they on tour in Europe or something? No, they were on Polygram. Ah. And when Bob came into the office of Polygram in early November to pitch the label on the idea, Cool in the Gang were there. And they were mm-hmm. like, that's cool. We'll do it. So they came over for this. Got it. Because I was like, they're from New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone's singing together. Bono's in a top hat. Yeah, of course. Top hat is such a, that's such a choice. Well, yeah. But it's also it, <laughs> Christmas time. It reminds me of like, you know. It is Christmas Dickens time, novel, you're right. So. Dickensian, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the big refrain, the Feed the World part, was mm-hmm. done first uh, as a way to get everyone excited and involved. Uh, as well as the the main photo that's that taken there, um, which is famous in the back of the cover uh, in, in the newspaper as well. Uh, Paul Young is the first person that you will see singing in the video. He's the first uh, solo singer, although he admitted that that line was reserved for David Bowie, who was unable mm. to attend. So David Bowie was supposed to do the opening line. Uh, Paul Young, well, Bob Geldof thought Paul Young had similar deep voice and was probably the only one that could sing the lead mm-hmm. in. He wants someone with like a deeper voice and kind of lead into the song in a more kind of darker manner. Um, yeah, quieter. Tony Hadley of Spandu Ballet was actually the first mm-hmm. to record his session. Uh, and he admitted that he was very nervous because he was around so many of his fellow musicians and, and contemporaries. Um, mm-hmm. Phil Collins also admitted to being nervous to, to drum in front of some, you know, amazing people. Uh, Simon LeBond said that he said, I actually, I had Sting standing next to me when I recorded my bit. And rather than him make me feel nervous or uncomfortable, I took great comfort in that. I was very proud to be on the microphone next to Sting. I really was. It was a beautiful oh, that's cool. Yeah. I feel like Sting has a calming presence. Probably so. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you see Bananarama, Cool in the Gang, and then you'll see Marilyn arrive, uh, who I was not familiar with. Uh, so I was not familiar with Marilyn. Marilyn was actually not invited 
to the recording, but uh, his, what? his star was falling. And so he felt like it would be a great way to get back in the uh, in the press, which it worked. I just how did how did Marilyn know well, I'm sure what was talking. going on? You know, people are like, oh hey, did Bob call you? Yeah, Bob call you, call Bob call me. We doing this thing. Bob didn't call me. I'm gonna show up in a basketball jersey. Exactly. <laughs> Nigel Planner, an actor with a hit song as a character, Neil, from the television comedy series The Young Ones, also showed up uninvited. Uh, and in character as well i love this uh, energy of just showing up he, he showed up to be a part of the cameras um oh that's he, so great and i read in quote he was tolerated for a while and then sent away <laughs> by midge <laughs> oh that's awesome uh so in the video you'll see uh paul weller from the jam glenn uh, gregory from once again Heaven the Seven. jam coming up i know yeah uh. <clears throat> so you'll see him from the jam, Glenn Gregory from Heaven Seventeen, and Sting, uh, all singing together around. Oh, I didn't uh, even notice Paul Weller. Yeah, That's so they uh, they're doing the the Here's to You harmonies in the song mm-hmm. Bridge. So they're originally supposed to be Francis awesome. Rossi and Rick Perfit, uh, the two frontmen for the rock band Status Quo. It's good they went with Paul Weller. He had a much more storied career. Well, so but that, at the time, uh, Status yeah, Quo, of course, mm-hmm. was kind of on the way out. They were popular years before but they had this like crazy crazy loyal fan base and bob mm-hmm. felt like if he brought them in it would give some rock cred to a predominantly like poppy style so mm-hmm. he brought them in uh and wanted them to sing the harmonies here uh however it, he uh once they started singing he he nixed it and put the other three guys in and because they couldn't hit the high notes so rossi privately mm-hmm. told yuri afterwards that in the studio, he sang all of Status Quo's vocal parts, and Parfit only sang on stage. And that Yuri should should have kept Parfit away from the microphone. Uh, Parfit admitted in a 2004 documentary that he and Rossi had been extremely hungover from partying the night before and were in no fit state to attempt to record their vocals. Uh, however, according to journalist Robin Eager, the only journalist present throughout the recording of the song, the pair were, uh, were able to contribute in other ways, saying. Once Status Quo produced their bag of cocaine and the booze started to flow, I brought six bottles of wine from my flat, which disappeared in minutes. It became a real party. So apparently they brought the party. Man, that's the footage I want to uh, see. There's also a great line from it sounds like a great fun. line from Francis in this documentary. You'll see them all singing <clears throat> here. And they do some clips of the big photo shoot. Uh, so, so real quick, at minute 254. Yeah. You'll see... Uh, that's Francis Rossi there. Uh, giving the, giving the thumbs goofy. up. He looks over, and then he looks back at the camera and gives a thumbs up. So he quoted saying, Jody Watley, I was looking at her derriere. I'm not really a derriere <laughs> person, but I was staring at her derriere, and of course the camera caught me. <laughs> oh, my God. So that's pretty awesome. What a diplomatic way of putting it. I know, that. it's funny, because he says derriere, and, and uh, the other guy in the band is, uh, they're being interviewed at the same time. And he says something like, that's your bum in English, or he's explaining what, what derriere means. It's funny. <laughs> so you'll see Boy George is the second solo artist that you'll see recording in the video. Mm-hmm. He was actually the last yep. to record that day. Geldof oh. desperately wanted Boy George on the record, as Culture Club was one of the biggest acts of the time. <laughs> so Boy George was in New York at the time, and he did not show up that morning. So Geldof was mm. furious. He said, quote, I got his number in a hotel in New York. I said, it's Geldof. Where the hell are you? Get on a plane right now. 
So he demanded that George get on the next Concorde flight to London, which would get him. Oh, the Concorde. He got on the Concorde to no, record this? not originally. He fell back asleep. So <laughs> he missed the first Concorde out. The first Concorde would have got him in at like noon. <laughs> so he fell back asleep. He would eventually make the last Concorde flight out that day, arriving in London and arriving at the studio at 6 p.m. Uh, he walked in and immediately ran into Simon Le Bon, who, according to George, quote, we'd been like sworn enemies for many years, but we ended up putting our arms around each other and posing for the press, which I didn't have time and I couldn't immediately find what, what, the, uh, what the beef was about, but apparently they, they yeah. had some beef. Uh, John Moss from Culture Club had been at the studio all day and he said, I didn't think he'd actually turn up, but he did turn up. And then he like mimics George saying, hi, everyone, I've arrived. He's like, makes it makes a big show about it. (laughs) And he says, he says, I remember George saying, I need a drink. And Bob looking at him saying, there's a fucking pub across the street, you. And then it bleeped out. So I don't know what he says. Uh, He said, George immediately got it. And he sang like a bird, of course. Oh, yeah, boy, I mean, he goes, sounds amazing on this. My song. voice was quite sore. I think I drank a lot of whiskey at the start. I've always gone in there and do a Rod Stewart, get really drunk, <laughs> have a raspy voice, but it worked for the track. It's interesting they don't have like uh yeah, like uh Rod Stewart or any of the Stones or anyone from that that gaggle of <clears throat> true English musicians. But I wonder, you know, I, I think a big part of this was that Bob with friends like people. Yeah, and they're they're all like pretty young. He just called it boy. Most yeah, of them. I mean, I think that's, that's really yeah. what it comes down to. Yeah, they involved. And again, three people turned him down. So maybe, maybe the Stones. Maybe who it was knows? Rod Stewart, Mick Jagger, and Ronnie Wood. <laughs> Perhaps who knows? <laughs> we'll, we'll never know. Yeah. Uh, oh, there's like there's no Robert Smith. There's no Morrissey. There's no like that's true. Uh, that's interesting. That's kind of surprising. Yeah, those would be the names you'd think that would be there. I would love to see Robert Smith in this video. Just like all the makeup, crazy hair, and looking like he doesn't want to be there or talk to anybody. Yeah, he'd fit in. <laughs> well, apparently it was a big party and everyone, like, yeah, nobody really knew what they were showing up for exactly. And mm-hmm. it feels like a very, like, earnest good time, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, Boy George thought of saying, I wasn't sure if it was any good, his recording. But Bob said something really sweet to me. He said, you sounded like an old black lady. I said, well, that's good then. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, I got to say, I hope everybody cozies up with a little uh, cup of hot dark matter coffee. Yeah. This holiday season. Um, they always have a, a holiday blend. I used to make a mixtape for their holiday blend, which was fun. Oh, really? like fun that's Christmas right. Songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That. It's still online. It's still online. Fuck yeah. Uh, I'll tweet about it. Um, Old Dank Nick is their, yeah, their yeah. holiday blend. But yeah, darkmattercoffee.com. Check it out. Uh, you can get all the coffee you want, free shipping. Wanted to hit cast as your promo code. So, seems like a good time. Good gift. Great gift. Great gift. Love coffee as a gift. Yeah, it's a great absolutely. Gift. Also, someone in the documentary mentions that, I guess, at the time, Boy George was one of the only openly gay artists out there. And at the time, Boy George felt like everyone else was gay. So, he would constantly try and out people <laughs> or in, in media, like in different interviews. Oh my and in, God. Uh, in in the documentary, he's one there. He says, like, you know, who sings before me? Who is that? And they're like, oh, it's so-and-so. And he's like, who, who's this after? And he's going through it. And they, they get to George Michael and he goes, oh. And he's like, that sounded said really camp. Don't, I guess camp is a reference to being gay. But he goes, <laughs> uh, that sounded really camp. And he goes, well, 
George is, so that makes sense. But at the time, George Michael was not out yet, so uh, wow. It's the, but apparently, that was like a thing that he did. It was uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, that is the the recording day. Um, like I mentioned, apparently, so I read a, a couple different accounts of this. Uh, one account is that they mixed it that night and mm-hmm. up, up until the morning, and then went right to the BBC and put it on Radio One. I read another account that it was a couple days in between, so I don't know exactly. I mean, that already makes this an unlikely hit. The fact that this was made in like 36 hours and then just came out is insanity. With all these people involved, it's crazy. Yeah, it's insanity. Yeah. And like, there, well, we'll talk about it, but there's a, a newer version that was done in 2004 with a ton of mm-hmm. then celebrities. But like, I'm sure that was very well planned out, very well orchestrated, where Oh, and you can record it and just send in your bit. Yeah, this is like you couldn't do that in this time. You would you would have had to overnight a tape. It would have taken the same amount of time. Yeah, Th- yeah. This is lightning in a bottle. This is this is pretty wild. It really is. And I think we are the world was way more of a a, a long process as well. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah. This yeah again. This is like just cra- crazy. So the reception at the time was was mixed. It was. Of course, like a, I would imagine. It was a, well, it was a massive selling hit, like, and we'll get into that. Sure. Um, you mean reception, critical reception? Yeah, yeah, critical reception. Yeah, yeah. The song that makes sense. The song on the surface is fine. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a quick rundown of the uh, some of the the press at the time. Uh, uh-huh. Enemy, uh, one of the biggest selling newspapers at the time, music newspapers at the time, had the caption "Turkey," which is a double meaning for Christmas dinner and artistic <laughs> failure. And dismissed the song with the line, millions of dead stars write and perform rotten record for the right reasons. Wow. Uh, Sounds, another publication said, it's far from brilliant, if not quite the bland aid some have predicted, but you can have fun (laughs) playing spot the star on the vocals. Yeah, exactly. Uh, You can have fun playing spot the star on the vocals, and it deserves to sell a truckload. Melody Maker stated, Inevitably, after such massive publicity, the record itself is something of an anticlimax, even though Geldof's sense of universal melodrama is perfectly suited to this kind of epic musical manifesto. Mid-Jury's large screen production and emotional vocal delivers of the various celebrities matches the demonstrative sweep of Geldof's lyrics, which veers occasionally toward an uncomfortable, generalized sentimentality, which threatens to turn righteous pleading into pompous indignation. On the other hand, I'm sure it's impossible to write flippantly about something as fundamentally dreadful as Ethiopian famine. Yeah. Which I think is like kind of summarizes it up. <clears throat> as I've mentioned, like I always felt the song when you listen to the lyrics of it are, is quite patronizing. Yeah. Uh, but again, I think it was all done in good faith. Sure. I mean, I I, think I, the, the, the heart is there for sure. The heart's there. And it sounds like at the time, at the, I feel like now, Looking back on the song with like a woke view, people will find it very like colonialism and Western centric, which it was. Oh, I mean, my, my, I my that... first, my, the first phrase that came to mind was white savior. Yeah. yeah. Which it is. And I think everyone that's involved in this, they, they do talk about this in the documentary. I think they all agree, but they're kind of like, well, this is what we can do. So what's the other option? You know, yeah, like, right. Do we do nothing? Mm hmm. And, and not be offensive like no let's just fucking make a record and raise as much money I as mean, possible that's a conversation that we've been uh, having for decades yeah, yeah. so they, they do address as I mentioned some of this in the documentary mm-hmm. which is good I mean I think we should we should look at all these things with a lens of of you know of growth and wisdom 
over the years, you know, so that we can do better the next time. They did address some of this, I said. Uh, the one line, which I always thought was very weird, is, well, tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. And Midge admits that there was a lot of arguing that day around that line. Bono said, please don't ask me to sing that line. I just don't think I can sing that. Bob said to Bono, he thought it was very raw and crude. Is it ironic, Bono though? Is it, I feel like it's like, it or, or rather uh, critical of how people, <clears throat> it's like, I mean, it's definitely in your face saying like, yeah, normally you would say, well, it can't happen to me, so who cares? And that's what's more about. Yeah, that's yeah. why so, we want you to help. Um, that's why we're telling you about this. Yeah, so Bono said- I kind of like how, how in your face it is, to be honest, given the context. Which I think is very much- Geldof, and that's how his writing. I'm not. A, I don't know a lot of Boomtown Rat songs, but I think that's his style of writing. Was like I being mean, very, very direct, very direct, very political. Yeah, yeah. So Bono said, "It seemed like the most bitterly selfish line, and I think maybe it was the truth of it that unnerved me yeah. about it. I almost didn't want to admit it." Sorry and to Bob, get ahead of Bono here. Yeah, well, Bob, in, in like defense <laughs> of the line, Bob said, "It is happening." There's no point in pretending or wishing it was otherwise. That's why we're here. What makes me respond is when I look at my kid and I think, thank God, you know, and that's the response. That's why we're going to help. It shouldn't happen to anyone. When I think about the lyrics in that way, uh, it is really interesting because like, Mm -hmm. it's so easy to send money to an organization and be like, well, thank God it's not happening to me. And that's not, like necessarily a, a, a wrong feeling to have you 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 would praise whatever you believe in mm-hmm. that that you're not in that situation but then you do what you can do you know yeah. and so it, it's interesting to like sit back and mm-hmm. think about that way because i have definitely armed armchair quarterback for the song and been like well that's kind of offensive like there's not gonna be snow in africa like it just feels a little bit weird but also like they you know it's a, it's a direct song it's a song that's supposed to make you think and, and consider your own emotions I kind of like that it has this, it's like a, it's a, it's a super group charity pop song that it's on his face is very cheesy, corny, you know, uh, contrived. And then it's got kind of this biting yeah. commentary to it. I mean, it. even the main line, do they know it's Christmas? was always a little weird to me. Yeah. But I think the point of it is that right. we're celebrating yeah, we're having glee. We're having we're over excess, here. Like, yes, we yeah. need to share that yeah. with other people who aren't as fortunate. Uh, but funny enough, right? They don't know it's Christmas because uh, Christmas is not celebrated in December in Ethiopia. <laughs> I, I, that's the uh, Michael yeah, Burke, the thought that I had instead of the song. It's a nice song, but complete bollocks. Actually, first of all, they didn't know it's Christmas because they have a different calendar. <laughs> Christmas is in July or something, so you could poke holes in it. But it didn't matter, did it? I thought the mood, I caught, yeah, sorry, it caught the mood. Those faces, those personalities, those musical talents made saving the lives of Africans, well, cool. And for those wondering, Christmas is actually January 7th in mm. Ethiopia. Oh. Uh, I did read that Bob Geldof told the Australian Daily Telegraph in 2010 that I'm responsible for the two of the worst songs in history. The other one is We Are the World, which, you know, I think he's talking about how, like, they become so synonymous and people give him a hard time, but you know, it is what it is. Yuri mm-hmm. followed up in his autobiography. It is a song that has nothing to do with music. It was really about generating the money. The song didn't matter. The song was secondary, almost irrelevant. 
which yeah. I think is true. Uh, and at the end of the documentary, you know, the, the BBC documentary that I've mentioned a couple times, Yuri says, you know, I'm still not convinced it's a good song. I think both Bob and I have written much better things, but it's probably the thing we'll be remembered for the most. That's quite true. In hindsight, of course, you know, almost 40 years later, uh, I do think they would have perhaps been better off just doing a song about sure. something else entirely or just doing a Christmas song that wasn't lyrically vaguely talking about this issue and then they just call <clears throat> attention to it via, you know, however they're selling it or the hard- at the end of the video or like whatever probably would have been better off. Uh, and the hard part about you know, that looking back at it, historically, we say that looking back from a time now where news is so in your face, you can go on the internet, Twitter, 24 hour news where many True. times in this, yeah. in, in my research, other artists mentioned Bob coming up to them in the street and being like, did you see the show on the 23rd, this documentary and this news reporting? And then be like, no, because I wasn't watching BBC that day. Mm-hmm. So like, people actually didn't really know that there was a famine in Ethiopia because news wasn't as in your face as it is now. Interesting. And so like, yeah. the song had to kind of really put it out yeah. there because that had to be the main explainer and driver. Interesting. So, okay. Yeah. That's a great point. If you hear it and you think, well, what are they talking about here? Like, what, what's what's going on? I mean, it can be intriguing. You look more into it, ask questions, like create yeah. a conversation, which is yeah, what exactly. the reporter was saying. So uh, the, the day point. after the recording, Geldof went on the ABC yeah. to promote the record uh, and say that every penny would be going to the cause. Most record retailers agreed to sell the record at its cost price mm-hmm. of a dollar, a pound, to 35, including the VAT tax. And there is video of Geldof is pissed about this. So there's video of him arguing with Margaret, Margaret Thatcher, uh, saying that, like, why are you charging a tax on this record? Like, money shouldn't be going back to England here. Money should be going right to Ethiopia. Uh, she, she fights back, clap back. Eventually, uh, the government would donate all the money from the VAT tax back to the organization that so would be going back to Ethiopia. Old Marge wasn't the best at reading the room. Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> here we are. Radio One began to play the song every hour more than the hour normally an a-list single would get seven or eight plays per day Mm -hmm. the number one single in the uk at the time was i should have known better by jim diamond and diamond was quoted saying i'm delighted to be number one but next week i don't want people to buy my record i want them to buy a band-aid instead wow cool the song had advanced orders of 250,000 copies within a week of its recording uh, and orders from record dealers that topped one million by Oh yeah, because it it wasn't manufactured yet. Yeah, no. So, uh, I think it I think it officially came out on December seventh. There was a, a launch party of sorts at the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, it was during a charity event called Dinner at Alberts, an evening of music to raise money for Save the Children and the Ethiopian Famine Relief Fund. Uh, single entered the UK singles charts the following week at number one, outselling the other records on the charts put together with the seven-inch single alone selling 200,000 copies in the first two days of the release. Uh, we should talk about the album itself. The, the album art... Uh, let, me, let me pull it up for you. Uh, or single. There weren't... Uh, it was just uh, AB well, single, yeah. right? Yeah. But the actual... Just making yeah, sure. Single. I didn't know if they made some other songs while they were on Coke and drinking whiskey well, so later on is, in the day. <laughs> so there's the, the B-side. Um, right. Interestingly enough, if you go... Spotify has a, a updated version um, of the album art, but this hmm. is the original album. 
at first it feels very strange and the and the updated album art isn't that it's, much better yeah um, it's a little a little off-putting but i know that's the point right so it features like a lot of christmas motifs like old school you know english. Like little girls playing with toys very yeah. english uh mm. there's a window in the back that has father christmas looking in it's like a big excess uh, extravagant yeah. christmas party uh-huh. almost and then there's like two ethiopian children uh sitting there randomly the album art was done by Peter Blake, who is famous for creating the iconic artwork for Sgt. Pepper. That that checks out. And this it is very Sgt. Like Pepper-esque. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, clippings uh, and multi, multimedia. Yeah. Yeah. So he said that the idea is that, you know, they're having this Christmas family here is having an extravagant party and they don't even realize that the Ethiopians are in the room and the Ethiopians have no idea that Christmas is happening mm-hmm. around them because they have much bigger things to worry about. So, yeah, you get it. Uh, it would be officially released in the U.S. on December 10th and has sold uh, and sold 1.9 million copies in its first 11 days of the release. Do you know where it would end up on the U.S. The US chart? chart? Oh, man. Yes. Hot number 100. one, UK. So, I, I will say the U.K., part of the reason why it's number one is that that's the way the chart system works, is that you can immediately have something rocket up the charts. For the U.S., it's a little bit harder, uh, simply because U.S. is radio and uh, yeah, combined. Sales. It's a formula, and now it's yeah. and now it's sales, radio, and streaming. Um, ten, I guess ten so a lot. It would peak at. <clears throat> well, that's a good guess. Uh, it would peak at number thirteen. Okay, and it would peak on January fifteenth or thirteenth, the week of January thirteenth. Cool and the Gang got them three more spots. Like, they're supposed to be 16, and Cool and the Gang got them a little further. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Well, so it would, uh, number 13, in between, at number 13, I Would Die For You by Prince. And number 12, The Boys of Summer by Don Henley. Oh, big hits. And obviously, I Would Die For You, an all-timer. Big hit. I mean, listen to some of these. So, number one song at the time was Like a Version by Madonna. (sighs) Man. All I Need by Jack Wagner. You're the Inspiration by Chicago. Uh, we have Foreigner in the mix here. We've got Brian Adams. We have Duran Durant, number seven, with the Wild Boys. Uh, we Belong by Pat Penatar at eight. Born in the USA, number nine. I mean... Which is climbing. This is a tall order to get any higher than 13. And we got Careless Whisper by Wham on here as well. So yeah, oh. we got a lot of big hits. And people that are in the song. <laughs> yeah. It, it, massive hit. Yeah. And, uh, we know that it's... Uh, the legacy of it is... It's, it's become synonymous with Christmas. Yeah. Um, Sting said, there's a charming nativity about the song. I think a more sophisticated song wouldn't have worked. It had to be a sort of Christmas carol, a nursery rhyme, simple, mm-hmm. idealistic version. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. Uh, Do They Know would remain UK's biggest selling record until Elton John's Princess Diana tribute of yeah. Candle in the Wind. The, the, we overtook it the 15 remake. years later. Yeah. Yep. Um, speaking of remix, the, this song would be re- remade, like I said, in 2004. Uh, some of the lyrics were changed, and the money would go to supporting Ebola. Got it. Uh, there sense. are countless covers of this song. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, I, I don't even know where to begin. Uh, Do yeah, a lot of the covers from, change the lyrics? I don't think so. Hmm. Maybe, maybe now. Yeah. But I mean, I'm, I'm looking through a list here. We've got, I mean, just so many. Let me see people I recognize. It's we have Pete Yorn, Bare Naked Ladies, <laughs> no Little River Band, 
Because like anyone that makes a record, they're gonna yeah makes a Christmas record. They would think of putting this on, you know. Yeah, it's just I, I feel think like, of any. I feel like if it's bare naked ladies, it's like slightly ironic. Uh, I remember that version. Uh, oh, Ellie Golding has the sheer chord one, the, which is funny because she's in the remake. Yeah. Oh, okay. And Bono's sense. in the remake again. Not really. We could do a Where Are They Now, but, uh, you know, Bono's in a very <laughs> successful band called U2. Boy George is still being Boy George. Sting is even bigger than possible. I, I will say, uh, Geldof, <clears throat> he was instrumental in, in creating the charity super concert as he created Live Aid. Uh, yep. And he would be granted honorary knighthood by Queen Elizabeth in 1986 for his charity work in Africa. Uh, although so he's, it's a, a, he's a KBE. Yes, exactly. So yeah. he is a uh, Irish citizen. So it's, uh, mm. but he is often referred to as Sir Bob. Uh, he's right. a recipient of the Man of Peace title, which recognizes individuals who have made an outstanding contribution to international social justice and peace. Uh, among many other numerous awards and nominations, um, Yuri is still making music and, and touring occasionally. He lives in Bath. Um, Yuri wrote an autobiography called If I Was. Uh, which he talks a lot about how he is now a recovering alcoholic as well. Um, I, I think almost everyone, a lot of a lot of folks, are part of the song are still making music, as, as many people know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, and they're all alive, right? Except for no, that's it. They're all I all think, people on the song are alive. I think they are. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, there might be like some unknowns that because I mean, there hey, were... mailbag right in if anyone's not alive who's on this song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, let me go. Uh, because the same cannot be said for we are the world this song uh if you were on this song you were a lot more lucky because uh something (laughs) about it there was something something in status quo's cocaine that made you live longer apparently (laughs) oh the the english coke was better yeah i'm sure it was uh so i mentioned that there's a b-side of the album featuring messages from different artists uh and then it that version concludes with a message from Geldof himself and i think it's a fitting way to end the podcast so this record was recorded on the 25th of November 1984 it's now 8am in the morning of the 26th we've been here 24 hours and I think it's time we went home so from me Bob Geldof and Midge we'll say good morning to you all and a million thanks to everyone on the record have a lovely Christmas bye that's a wrap on this episode of You Wanted a Hit thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed it good luck getting that song out of your head Please remember to subscribe so you know when the next episode is out. And if you listen on Apple, write a review, but only if it's nice. Follow us on Twitter at YWAHpod and let us know what you think. Or tell us what we missed by sending us an email at YWAHpod at gmail.com. And lastly, share with a friend if you had a good time. This podcast was researched, produced, recorded, and edited by me and Theo Bible, And our theme music is by Air Doctor. We'll see you next time.